For then, in the great hall of Care Paravel, what wonderful hall with the ivory roof and the west wall hung with peacock's feathers and the eastern door which looks towards the sea in the presence of all their friends and to the sound of trumpets, Aslan solemnly crowned them and led them to the four thrones amid deafening shouts. Long live King Peter. Long live Queen Susan. Long live King Edmund. Long live Queen Lucy. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today for this final chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Reminder that whoop, as, whoop. We are talk- whoop, whoop, whoop. as we are talking about this book, there's a general wo- spoiler warning for it, as well as the Narnia series as a whole. But we will also be going on to tangents into other uh, stories that we enjoy, so we'll do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if there's anything too far out there. But today, we are discussing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the final chapter, chapter 17, the hunting and not catching of the white stag. Uh, if only we could have caught it. But what if we will catch, Cal, is a summary of this book, which I'll tell you right now. Yes. So the battle that we were all excited for was over super quickly. Um, most of the enemies were defeated in Aslan's initial charge. When everybody saw that the witch was dead, the rest just kind of ran away. Peter and Aslan shook hands, you know, the things that lions definitely have. And then Peter shares the reason that they won is because Edmund risked his life to fight his way to the witch and destroy her wand. In the process, he was gravely injured. They found him not looking very good, but then Lucy remembered she had magic healing potions, so nothing matters. Lucy spent about a half an hour healing everyone that was wounded while Aslan restored the people who turned to stone. And then after that, they see Edmund is fine. Lucy and Susan start to argue over whether they should tell him maybe about the sacrifice that Aslan made. But instead of coming to a conclusion on that conversation, they're interrupted and never talk about it again. The party spends the night on the battlefield and the next day they march to Care Paravel, the great castle on the sea. They have evening tea, and then the four children are crowned at the four thrones in the Great Hall. The crowd cheers, long live the kings and queens, and that once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. They have a great feast, and during the celebrations, Aslan just kind of slips away, doesn't say goodbye, because apparently he has other countries to be attending to. Plus, he's not a tame lion, so you can't tie him down. The new kings and queens governed Narnia for a long time, and it was all great and happy. And at first they hunted down the remaining enemies in the land, but then they just kind of made laws and were good rulers and built alliances with other kingdoms and stuff. You can see the details of that in the next book. Hit us up next week. Uh, Over time, they became known as King Peter the Magnificent, Queen Susan the Gentle, and King Edmund the Just, and Queen Lucy the Valiant. One day... Tumnus, now middle-aged, to show time had passed, came and told them a white stag has been seen in his woods. And, you know, it's the magic kind that if you catch, it grants wishes and stuff. So the siblings went hunting, and now they all spoke Shakespearean English as they come across a lamppost in the woods, which I guess they'd never seen before, what's happening? But it felt familiar, like from an old dream. They all get the sense that if they go beyond the lamppost, they'll find some new adventure. They agree to take that shot, even though Susan doesn't want to go. And they follow this urge and stumble out of the wardrobe into the empty room. No time had passed. They're all in their old clothes. But they decide to tell the professor why four coats were missing from the wardrobe, even though they only stole three, but we'll get to that. And the professor said he believed their story entirely because he's a chill dude. He told them he didn't believe that they'd get back into Narnia through the wardrobe. But, of course, they would get back again someday. Because, as everyone knows, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. And if he's right, then this story is only the beginning. The end. The end. Chase, the theme of this chapter is full circle. Because at the end of the circle is just more circle. Uh, which means that has anything actually happened? We'll let you decide. Chase, uh, I guess the battle's over. Yeah. I guess it's done. 
Well, Kel, who needs a battle when you can get the aftermath of a battle? Man, I, I've always said the my favorite parts of you know reading a story are the end of it when it's done and I don't actually get to get any story. Yeah. I mean, in movies and TV, when they skip a battle scene, it's because they don't have a special effects budget. But uh, Clive, Clive's got his own reasons. I guess maybe he knows he does. that when you're uh, when you're grilling out, the real fun isn't in actually flipping the burgers. The real fun is in standing around the burgers, commenting on them. Yeah, because you know, whatever. Uh, but it's a thing where like the, he just ends the battle. He just. The, the queen, the witch dies off screen, I guess, in that one pounce that Aslan had. So, I mean, whatever. Um, but luckily, you know, the good guys win. Everything's done. Uh, all of the White Witch's companions, uh, once they see that she's dead, supposedly, they start giving up. Uh, and then Peter and Aslan just shake hands, which Chase, we've commented on this before. I hate this. I just, I hate it. This implies that Aslan has thumbs. It's, this is really cringy. <laughs> He's just. For the listeners, Kel is shaking his hand up and down in front of the camera with no with thumb. No thumb. <laughs> I, I just I felt just, like people needed that picture. Yeah, um, it's necessary. I mean, for me, it's a thing where, like, it's this goes back to like two legged Aslan, which we already don't like. And then, you know, anthropomorphic, like, Aslan just it, it bothers me like be a lion man lions are cool like that's Aslan's the thing cool that's that's like the selling point of the book but also like I, I don't know I think part of what bugs me about the way C.S. Lewis does the two-legged Aslan thing is that it's not consistent like yeah. it's not just like okay, we can buy that Aslan walks on two legs because he's magic lion and all this stuff. Like, like if that was established and that was the way things went for, through the whole book and the whole series, then we'd get over it. It would be one of those things where like, okay, we'll suspend our disbelief, we'll get over the cringe, we'll pretend it's not happening, but at least we'll accept it. But it only happens like once every couple of chapters with him. The rest of the time, he's just a lion. And it it makes it that much worse and that much more cringy whenever we do see moments like this where it's like, um, could, could you stop that, please? Could you, could you go back it. to Ryan stuff? Stop it, Aslan. But whatever. Chase, I will say that, you know, after all this time, we've had 17 chapters of this book and I didn't think I was going to be here. I didn't think I was going to say it. But you know what? Team Edmund. Team hey, Edmund, hey, man. Hey. Edmund deserves credit here. And Peter, you know, graciously gives it to him. He's talking yeah. to Aslan and he says, hey, we wouldn't have won if it wasn't for Edmund. Because Edmund, unlike all these other stooges who are just running at the White Witch who's turning people to stone, uh, like this is a, you know, a video game with, you know, henchmen who don't understand how to fight. Like, Edmund is like, oh, all what if I just... Players. Edmund's like, what if I broke her wand so she stopped turning people to stone? Like, don't move, Edmund. Good for you. And then yeah. he gets, like, mangled for it. But, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, he gets wrecked. But, I mean, yeah, you're right. And it's the last chapter, so we can we can do a most improved award, which, as we know, Susan was a stale piece of bread the whole time. So she's but she's But she's a realistic stale piece of bread. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I respect it. Like, but she doesn't have a lot of movement one, one direction or the other. Oh no, and we'll, I have even more to say about Susan's lack of activity in this uh, later in this chapter. But right now, Peter is going to be very casual about how terribly wounded Edmund is. Like, oh, yeah. he's just sitting here, like, hey, let me shake paws with Aslan. And, like, Let, let's, let's sit here and talk about while my brother is dying on the other side of this field. Maybe he should bump down a little bit in these rankings. Yeah, Peter definitely yeah. bumps down a little bit. Uh, and, and, Edmund definitely rises, but like for the guy who skips the battle, the guy who does not show Aslan's death because, you know, supposedly it's too gory. He's about to describe Edmund, a child as covered with blood and his face like a nasty green color, like, and like near the point of death. I, I just like, love the detail, what? coughing up blood. Like it's like a full movie. Yeah. So 
Oh, it's like, bad. it's like, dude, you're you're okay showing a, a like a child being like near death, but not like anyone else. Yeah, I'm I'm confused. Not a single other person actually gets to gets to be shown in the scene, which like we we do see how messed up Edmund is. But God forbid that his seven-year-old little sister gets to make sure he's okay. So what happens, listener, is Aslan goes, quick, Lucy, because if you remember, Lucy was given a cordial of some sort of healing potion by Father Christmas. Uh, which honestly which, has not been mentioned since that one since then. So like, you know, thank goodness, Lucy, hey, you get to go be useful now. Susan, sorry, you don't. Stay stale, stale, you know, a uh, little piece of like gross bread right now because you still are useless and don't get to do anything, at least for another couple books. But Lucy, you There's get to no go heal people. Her magic arrows in this chapter. Yeah. Why even give her a bow? Like, why mention that? But uh, so Lucy begins healing Edmund. And then Aslan, so this is their, this is their couplet. Lucy is healing Edmund. And Aslan goes, there are other people wounded. Lucy goes, yes, I know. Wait a minute, which also a bold move. Uh, but then Aslan goes, daughter of Eve, others also are at the point of death. Must more people die for Edmund? All right, let's calm down here, Aslan. She's like eight and her brother is near death. And also you like barely died. Yeah. Also like your magic, Lucy has magic healing powers. You literally died for Edmund earlier. So like, so now apparently it's not acceptable to die for Edmund. But also she's seven. She's seven, man. Like, just let her like let her be okay. Like, let her know that her brother is actually gonna heal. Cause at this point, she doesn't know if the cordial's working or not. Like, there is no visible change in Edmund. It's yeah, it it really is wild, which that is something about this book that's been kind of jarring for me is like Aslan is cool and stuff, but also like he's very harsh. Yeah. He's, like he, he doesn't get the uh, like father lion vibes that I would have expected from him in this book. Yeah. He's, he's definitely got some moments of just like kind of uh, like coldness. Uh, which is not what you would expect from someone covered in fur. Uh, but, you know, that is what it is. You can't rewrite or edit books. So you what can. do you do? It's impossible. Once you write it, it's on the page forever. Boom, done. Uh, if we get but, a page of walking in the middle, then nothing you can really uh, do about that. But you know what you can do something about? Edmund's terrible attitude. Because in addition... Uh, to you know when Lucy begins you know healing people and uh, Aslan goes you know turning people away from stone and uh, Edmund gets his his magic healing potion which not only heals him of his wounds but also for being a butthole Uh, so you know congratulations magic healing potion and also can we get some of this because there are people I'm sure that all of us could uh, could you know we think could use some healing potion yeah I mean I could use some but that's yeah, I think that's, it's early in the morning. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, but uh, because of this, once Edmund is, you know, he's all good. He gets knighted by Aslan. Again, we get to the question, how is Aslan holding a sword to knight him? Well, as uh, we established earlier, he has thumbs. But... He apparently has thumbs. Or he's, like, clasping the sword between two paws, which seems precarious. Uh, because, you know, what if it slips out and kills Edmund after all this time? Uh, that'd be a bummer. That'd be, that'd be more funny, but it'd be it definitely that feels much more like a uh, Monty Python like sketch than a Narnia sketch. Uh, but I don't know. How do you feel about the fact that all of this is wrapped up so cleanly on the battlefront? Like, because after a half hour, everyone is just restored, and it's like nothing ever happened. And yeah, except it, for the people who like died. Yeah, which that's not really like, I mean, it's kind of glossed over. Like it's glossed over that people die. Like they don't really have any, any like memorial or, or stopping to like acknowledge that real sacrifice took place because the healing potion and the like breathing statues back to life 
are kind of treated like this like diamond machine like let's yeah. let's just move this on I, I just feel like it removes the weight of the battle it's like having extra lives in a video game like it makes you give less value to like what you're actually doing if you're taking risks and stuff and yeah the other it, side of this it just feels less yeah it feels less weighty yeah i think that's i think you're you're definitely right and i think there's that's part of it where one of the difficult parts of this book is generally like when you're reading a you know a story or watching a movie or something like that where uh you are aware of some sort of stakes in the big battle in the big fight scene or whatever like it's you're you're invested in your concern because if someone dies they're dead and that's a real thing but you're also invested in the people who might die right uh that's why like it, you know aslan's death is supposed to be a big deal, even though it's only given like half a chapter, but it's a big deal because you know Aslan, you're invested in Aslan, but then he immediately comes back to life. All of these people that die are all random people off screen that you never met, that you never really have any introduction with, that you only get like a half a chapter of intro with as they're entering into the like campground and then they immediately leave. Um, and there's no really... scene of like at the end of Harry Potter where Harry's walking through and sees all the people who like sacrifice themselves for him. right. And, and like there's no like end of a lot of stories where like the person who's supposed to be the hero at least like walks away with a limp from the battle or like has yeah. a scar or like sure. has something that marks that like no this costs them something mm -hmm. for the rest of their time ruling right. for the rest of their time like being part of the story but at the same time they won and so that's something you carry with like it, it feels like we don't really carry with us the fact that like this had real stakes to it yeah i think you definitely see the the difference between older fantasy i mean this is in the 50s um and modern fantasy modern fiction like this is not a story plotline you could kind of get away with because like currently like look at any more recent piece of fiction you know be that uh game of thrones aragon harry potter um ender's game uh you know the red rising series uh anything that you will um there are consequences and there are real um things that people have to deal with because that's what happens when you go into battle and when you go on these adventures like there's real stuff that you have to deal with uh it's not just like cool we won this is everything's great there's no problems um it's a reason why like i really appreciate the uh extended star wars universe not just the movies but also the novels and the the tv shows because they get to dive into everything after the battle of indoor or you know after everything's gone down when you're like oh man like there's actually still a lot of issues and like people are kind of messed up like how do you deal with the fact that like my dad is a genocidal you know killer uh, who's blown up planets and also tortured me uh, and cut off my hand depending on if you're leia or luke like you know, how do you reconcile with these so things? Really, half of the characters in that series have lost a hand, but uh, and are also related. But yeah, you know, it's, it's a family trait to lose a hand. Everyone, yeah. But it's it's a thing where I think you definitely see the difference here. Where this is this is an older story where you kind of got to wrap things up, and it's also a kid's story. So um, he he, I think you definitely see him trying to just like be like, ah, oh, no, like it's yeah, noble. Yaz, yadas it, and it's uh, it's also interesting, like thinking about that in the sense of like him as a war veteran and writing in the context yeah. or to to kind of two hand wave over things like the sacrifice of soldiers or even like as we get into this next scene here like even the question of whether or not aslan sacrifice should yeah be I'd, I'd love to to dive into that yeah, I think that's there. because that, so, that was something that like tripped me up in this chapter where like that doesn't make any sense yeah in the of this book yeah, so give a we'll provide another little couplet here. So Lucy and Susan are chatting, and she says, 
does he, Edmund, does Edmund know what Aslan did for him? Does he know what the arrangement with the witch really was? Susan says, hush. No, of course not. Lucy, oughtn't he to be told? Susan, oh, surely not. It would be too awful for him. Think how you'd feel if you were he. Lucy, all the same, I think he ought to know. And I'd love to know, Chase, what are your thoughts? Because, like, I think I agree with Lucy here, but I, I get it where Susan's coming from. But what do you, what, where, where would you fall along these lines? I mean, I thought this conversation was insane. Yeah. <laughs> because, so I, I thought about it on two levels. Because on the allegory level, like, of what this story is trying to accomplish, this is basically them discussing, is it important to share the gospel or not? <laughs> Should we tell then, people that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Yeah. But then on the story level, like, I don't agree that it does any good for Edmund not to know. Like, so what if he feels guilty like he should know the weight of his actions. He should know the links Aslan went to, to for salvation. Yeah. And on the whole, like that should be something that is public. Like that should make it into the histories of Narnia, what Aslan yeah. did to save King Edmund the Just. Like it, and it kind of gets into this whole like larger conversation because a lot of people don't like the idea of like, sacrificing for the unworthy person like there's like this is one of those big concepts in christianity that people kind of wrestle with of like well why should jesus have to pay for me i'm not that bad it's kind of takes us to that larger level of like if we don't know the cost of salvation then we won't understand the weight of sin like if we mm-hmm. don't acknowledge the cost of healing the land of narnia if we don't acknowledge the cost of bringing edmund back into the fold then we're not going to understand like how serious the acts were in the first place yeah i think it may i think you're absolutely right because i think it it says so much about aslan's character of like he is sacrificing his life he actually died on behalf of Edmund so that he could you know redeem him that he could bring him into this point and as we will see in the rest of this book and as we'll see uh, in the next you know several stories that are to come like Edmund is awesome and like he he lives a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that you know Aslan made and I think that's a big part of Christianity is like we are redeemed by Jesus uh, not to continue living in the same way and same pattern in which we were, but in a redeemed way, you know, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus, the the cross is meant to like make us new creations. Uh, and, and you have to actually know about it in order to be made new. Uh, so I, I agree. It's, I understand them wanting to like not make him feel bad because he's a child, but also there's there's significance in understanding like hey you did mess up and there are consequences but also know like Aslan loved you so much that he was willing to do this yeah and also if this was like a larger more expansive fantasy story this is the kind of thing where like it'd be interesting to have the fanfic of if they didn't tell him what are the consequences of him not knowing like, yeah. Does that's he? A, that's a theme that's very wrapped up in a lot of other fantasy that isn't addressed here because this is again children's story. But sure. it is one of those things. Like even if you take out the Christian aspect of it, it still feels like you you lose something if if he doesn't know. Also, like I don't know. It just kind of feels like. Uh, Oh, I lost that train of thought. Guys, it's it's seven in the morning. I'm sorry. It happens. No, it's good. No, I, I'm with you. It it just, yeah, I think it loses its significance. And I think you you lose some weight uh if you yeah. don't um, you know, address this and especially if address it with Edmund. But this should be a widely known story. Like this should be yeah. something that is proclaimed. Uh and also like for enemies of Aslan. Would you not want them to know, like, hey, this dude could conquer death? Like, yeah, I yeah. like it's it's a whole. It's yeah, a that whole is thing. the train of thought that I just found again. That it is treated in the story like Aslan dying is just kind of a chess game for him. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, this is just so that I can un like break these rules that happened before time. These arbitrary treachery rules. 
Yeah, the, it it depersonalizes the actual act of of his sacrifice because it's no longer about Edmund. Like even in the chapters themselves, it wasn't so much about Edmund that he was going to that. It was about the magic rules that you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to solve this puzzle so that we can bring all these people out of out of statuedom. And, Absolutely, uh, and that kind of I think devalues the the metaphor that Lewis is trying to get at there, where it's like, yeah. well, is is this really what we believe? Is is that all we think this is? Like on the Christian side of things, like do we just think that Jesus died to check a box so that we can like all get our free pass to heaven, or do we think that this was like a personal? act of like actual agony that he had to go through and that mm-hmm. he was actually counting the costs in this situation and yeah. and it just kind of speaks to yeah. some of the like flimsiness of at least this version of this story because sure throughout the rest of the series which i'm really excited that we are getting into the rest of the book soon like c.s lewis does tackle a lot of the themes of that of the gospel in different layers and different angles throughout the rest of this series in ways that I think are more impactful than in this book. But it is interesting to see how it's kind of handled in this first initial element of the story. I think as we've mentioned before, and as you know, this is, it's definitely like epitomized in this chapter is C.S. Lewis's pacing issues. And it, it really, uh, in this book in particular, he's going to get better at it, but this book, because you only deal with Aslan's death and resurrection in half of a page or half of a chapter each. And like, you don't deal with any aftermath of it because you immediately go into, okay, cool. It's time to dance. It's time to, you know, turn things back from stone and uh, it's time to win a battle in less than a page. And uh, now we're going to zoom forward, you know, 40 years. Like you don't really deal with anything because his pacing is so wonky um, and I think that's a lot of the issues with it. But as you said, he's going to get better at how to handle really difficult subjects because he will handle difficult subjects as the books go on. Uh, but as we make our way back to the story, the Jesus imagery continues because uh, Aslan uh, miraculously feeds this crowd with who knows how much food. But uh, because it's Britain, it's not just feeding them lunch. Uh, it's tea time. Uh, so he makes sure that everyone has enough tea and crumpets for everyone. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> just in case we forgot they were British. They are British. This this is not a uh, this is not some stinking American lion over here eating hamburgers. Uh, no, he's he's this is hamburger and pizza, the feast of kings. Um, <laughs> but uh, know, if if uh, as we're getting into this feasting and and as we march towards Care Paravel, can you remember a time you've heard seagulls? Have you, you heard them? Do you, Chase? Like, listeners, just put your put your hands to your ears real fast and see, can you hear them? Oh, God. Oh, no. Get away. Uh, just having a flashback to the first time I watched uh, The Birds. <laughs> the Birds or Finding Nemo, either or. Uh, very similar movies. Right, right. Uh, they're very similar in genre and structure, but uh, <laughs> just a weird one throwaway line. He's got a few lines in here that yeah. apply to nothing that yeah, he just throws in there. Like, can, do you hear the seagulls sing? Like, just uh, <laughs> he's going for it. And then he immediately is like, okay, cool. But also like Care Paravel. And Care Paravel is the big deal. That's the thing that is important here. For the listeners who didn't read this chapter along with us, just so you know what we're complaining about, there's just this random paragraph in the middle of this chapter where C.S. Lewis takes him aside to describe the uh, the seaside of Caerparavel. But what he really focuses on is the squawking of seagulls and how, how magnificent it is to listen to seagulls squawk on the beach and i hate like, seagulls chase that's all he cares about it's, it's I, hilarious i don't know if this is a hot take but i hate seagulls i don't oh, they're the worst you can't see at the they're, they're flying beach rats like yeah. 
Absolutely. They're a pest and everyone knows it. Why, like, why I, is this the thing that you love about the beach? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's strange, but they I make their I way. I remember in England, the beach is stony and cold. So, yeah, so I, I guess, guess the seagulls are the best part. I guess seagulls are kind of a bright spot because they're like, well, I, I don't have to step on these rocks and like, there's this cliff over here, but look, a seagull. Oh, it pooped yes, on me. This is well, better than the smog of downtown London. <laughs> That's because as we are aware from uh, the magician's nephew, London is apparently just the worst. Yeah, it's a hole. It's it's not, it's it's not what you want to be. But, it's also so they, bombed during this book. So I guess it's true. The seagull, you know, we'll take the seagulls over planes. Yeah. And you know where is not a hole? Care Paravel. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And as we described in our opening quote, um, it's, you know, this very majestic place. And Aslan uh, now just fast forwards without any explanation. And let's just crown the kings and queens of Narnia. Long live King Peter, Queen Susan, King Edmund, and Queen Lucy. And as we know, Chase, once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. Uh, what about Frank and Helen? What about them? Did we this forget? This is for Frank. Hashtag never forget. This is ridiculous. The cabbie gets no love here. Yeah, this is this is just disappointing. People forget their history and this is what happens. This is what happens. You also forget about literal humans existing in Narnia. Uh, and we won't forget about that. Literally. Oh yeah, now we don't forget because we're about to mention other you know countries in this world where they're about to meet heads of state. But yeah, whatever. yeah. What we'll realize in the rest of the series is that the no humans of Narnia thing only applies to the country of Narnia, not the, and only for maybe that one hundred year window. Yeah, the hundred year window in this like ten square mile square in the middle of this entire world is the only place that doesn't have humans. The rest of the place is all humans. Yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. Don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. You don't want to know the answer to. But I want to know the answer to. But another, as we move past this. Uh, there's another one line aside that he makes where he's like, oh yeah, also there was mermaids and mermen just standing there cheering, but that's not important. Let's get back to the story. It's like, why yeah. would you mention this? Why, why include that that detail? Maybe, maybe he just wants us to be ready for Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Maybe he's maybe. just trying to let us know that there are uh, there are lives there are happening outside people. of the people. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, this feels like if you were taking a like, like a like an SAT like writing portion or something like that, and you're reading a story and it, it would include one line that just doesn't matter. And you'd be like, hey, which of these sentences or which of these lines could you remove from the story? And that's the it's like, who cares? Like this doesn't affect anything. Again, and it's literal one line. He's never had an editor and refuses to reread his own book. Refuses. But uh so we we get to the, you know the coronation of these literal children uh, and as they're, you know, sitting on their thrones and uh, they're, you know, receiving their scepters and crowns, they decide to give rewards and honors to all of their friends. And let me, let me uh, listener mention all of their friends, Tumnus, the child kidnapper, the beavers, racist turncoats, Giant rubble buffet. All right, he's fine, I guess. Just got a stupid name, but he's fine. I, I uh, like how he gets that elevated status after yeah. his one sentence in this book. Well, you know, he did have to be big. That's his defining characteristic. Uh, but uh, and, uh, and also not like with those other giants. Um, but the other friends are the leopards, the the good centaurs, the good dwarfs, not like those other dwarfs. Uh, and the lion that Edmund drew face on. Uh, they're friends lion. now, I guess. The lion has gotten more personality than any other individual character in this book. Why do any that of lion these... is so fun? That lion that lion's the G. He's he's the real hero here. Uh, the why do why do any of these people? get any specific honors like i guess you could mention the beavers because if you ignore their really problematic uh ideologies they at least assisted the children on their journey to aslan tumnus did nothing yeah tumnus like tumnus did the opposite tumnus of, only of put help. them in danger did not help 
Giant Rumble Buffin, he's fine, but I would call him above average at best, not necessarily deserving of honor. Like if Chewbacca doesn't get a medal, I don't think Giant Grumble Buffin does. True, uh, true. But and then random leopards, centaurs, and dwarves, like and the lion. Which like if they like Aslan did they everything, did something valiant in the battle, but also the battle was non-existent. So why does it? Aslan literally did everything. Why, like, why is anyone getting honored here? But maybe I'm just being a grumble buffin. Uh, so, I mean, sorry about that. I, I agree with the grumbling. It's it's ridiculous. But, but what else is ridiculous is that where's Aslan? <laughs> if you heard that sound, that's more uh, clue that Aslan left than any of the children received because Aslan has mastered the Irish goodbye. And though this is a British story, they're giving uh, due homage to their neighbors to the north because Aslan just sets a great future example for future introverts and in how to just ghost at a party because he just quietly slips away. Uh, and like the children are like, yo, where's Aslan? And Mr. Beaver gives this uh, line of dialogue that I just have so many issues with because he goes, oh, he'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him. Another, you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, of course, and he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. One, how do you know all of this, Mr. Beaver? You've only just met him, and he hasn't been in Narnia for a hundred years, at least. Also, now they're aware of other countries, and like, with the, like where that Aslan has to visit that are humans are supposedly there yeah. is this foreshadowing or just plot holing also uh, all of the above <laughs> also mr beaver could not resist throwing in a not a tame lion in there one hey, more time let's get this saying going hey uh, <laughs> not a tame lion he's can't he's tie Aslan down can't tie him down. Aslan is that boyfriend who's afraid of commitment. So when Aslan is an like independent saying, lion, he just fully ghosts you. Aslan is an independent lion who don't need no children. Uh, and Aslan's got ninety nine problems and a children <laughs> in one. <laughs> is he man? If we're going for like dad Aslan vibes here, is he the? Is he just skipping out right now? Aslan went to get cigarettes and milk. And he'll be back when he gets back. Don't worry about it. Is gonna come back and like, like you know, for these kids, two more books, and he's gonna be like, hey, and they don't even recognize him because it's Aslan been that long. Comes back walking on two feet, wearing a wife beater. <laughs> Aslan, they don't even recognize Aslan when he comes back, except for Lucy. Uh, he, like like all dads, they go away. When you see him again, he is bigger. He that's true, uh, but Chase. This story is nearly, but not quite, at an end. And I didn't think I'd be saying this about the most famous of his books, but I'm kind of excited for this story to be over. Which, like, if you're a listener who's like, but this is the my favorite book, or like, C.S. Lewis is so great, why are you talking bad about him? It's not that we don't like the book, we just... We are excited for the other books in the series. And also there were some obvious pacing issues in this book that yeah. even just reading the first chapter of the next book are not the same in the other books. Like they're they're set up a lot more cleanly. Yeah, he gets better as he goes on. And also like we do have to mention, we do like these books. We dug on them a lot, but also that's kind of what we're, that's what we're here to do. You yeah, know, we're here to be overly critical. Yes. Yeah. We're here to be overly critical and spend way too much time talking. Uh, but uh, now we we get to just fast forward because now the kings and queens are grown up and starting to govern Narnia. And I want to talk about some of the good laws that they put in place. Uh, like, so these are the things that are specifically mentioned. Let's keep the good trees from being cut down. Screw the bad ones. They can get chopped in half. I don't care. But let's keep the good ones standing. Then... Let's make sure young dwarfs and young satyrs don't have to go to school because God forbid they get educated. Yeah. And then we already talked about the fact that we don't care about remembering our history here. So, yeah. And then the third law that is mentioned, and I'm just, this one makes no sense to me. 
because it says, let's stop busybodies and interferers and encourage ordinary people to just live and let live. What does this mean? Are, are how, is this a, how is this? How is this? How is this a law? Like what? What are you? What are you enacting? No more Mrs. Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> like lit. Like you're 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 making a law to live and let live. Like is everyone? Are you just passing out? Like like make make love not war pamphlets to everyone? Like this is the anarchist state of Narnia. There are I, there are no the only rules. There's no rules except we do have a monarchy. Yeah, with four. No, there's no rules except long live the king, and also we're going to chop down all the bad trees that we don't like. Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to hunt down all the people who disagree with us. But there's no rules. Live and let live. Yeah. Okay. Here, I want to. Yeah. Let's let's mention that real quick because it does say that they uh, that they spend a lot, like they spend the majority of their like first you know little time in office. Seeking out and destroying the remnants of the witch's army, uh, which, like, I agree with strategically speaking, like from a military standpoint, sure. But this seems really harsh for a little kid story where it's like, no, kill all of the of the treacherous, uh, you know, followers of the queen, murder them, yeah. so that we can have a loving and peaceful Narnia. You know, nothing ends a good children's book like a red scare. <laughs> it's. You know, it is what it is. And like in the, you know, in the process of getting rid of the witches followers, you know what? Let's get rid of the bad giants too. Let's keep grumble buffing and uh, let's, you know, rid ourselves of those other giants. And then if they'd done a better job, we wouldn't have a silver chair, but uh, we'll get there. That's man. That's true. But, uh, and then let's go visit other countries and their heads of state. I liked that part because it is direct foreshadowing to the horse and his boy. That's true. Coming I, next week, listeners. <laughs> coming next week to a podcast near you. you. Uh, but uh, we get to the the naming of the kings and queens. And by the name, I mean their titles, uh, not just giving them names. And I got to say, after all this again, Team Edmund, because it's you get... Uh, descriptions of them. Peter becomes, you know, like a great warrior. He's known as Peter the Magnificent. Okay, cool. He's the High King, sure. Uh, Susan uh, becomes really graceful, uh, and everyone wants to marry her. Apparently, she's Susan yeah. the Gentle. She has super long hair. I don't super know. Long hair. They they go horse riding later in this book, and I, I would like more information on how this is not a problem because it's to her feet. Yeah, from the description. But- yeah, this is not even like waistling hair, which is usually the longest you see it. Like, this like she like, put you she step put on your updo. She putting this in an updo. Like, what she what she got going on here? She rocking some braids. Uh, going full Katniss braid before it was cool. Respect. Uh, and then uh, I'm gonna skip Edmund and come back to him. And then we get Lucy, uh, the gentle, uh, because she's just always wanting to have fun and all. Apparently, like people, you know. Also, like her defining characteristic along with Susan is everyone wants to bury her. So, like, congrats, girls. You have well, really. You uh, know, Kel, women aren't allowed to have personalities. They're only for marriage. That's, I mean, <laughs> sure. Yeah. That's, it, yeah. It's obviously yeah, what is being put out. Here. This was definitely written in the 50s. There's a little bit of misogyny in this. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Just sure. like the girls don't get to take uh, take part in the battle, even though they want to. Even though they have a bow and arrow. Yeah, uh, even though they were specifically given tools that would magically help them be useful in that battle. A bow and arrow, a tool that allows you to not be in the thick of fighting, but yeah. still be useful. Now, also, don't bow and use arrow that. that literally never misses that was not used once in this book. I bet that would have been helpful. Nope. Uh, but as I skipped earlier, uh, Edmund becomes a graver and quieter man than Peter, and great in counsel and judgment, and he was called King Edmund the Just. Hashtag Team Edmund. Let's yeah. go. I'm on board. Yeah, Edmund has his full glow up. He he wins the most improved award. He, uh, yeah. it you, you get the sense that he's the one that, if they were to have, like, an actual election, like, who should be the one making the decisions here? Edmund is a guy who recognizes the mistakes he's made 
He recognizes the issues that are in this world because he has dealt with them. He's thoughtful. He is like, he's understanding and he's just. Tell me, who do you want as a king? Yeah. Edmund. Edmund, 2024. (laughs) I'd vote for him. I mean, he's probably like, Although apparently he's a libertarian candidate, so I don't know how that third party is going to work out for he's him. Probably not. Like he's uh, he's he's going to be one of those candidates. Like man, like you seem really solid, but you aren't going to get near enough media attention, so you won't. You're not going to get enough uh, enough traction when, here. But when you ask him about his policies, he'll forget that like half of his policy is education, and then it'll all it'll all fall apart. It all falls apart in the end. But he's very thoughtful. So Go team, Edmund. Uh, but. The person I'm not, you know, pro is Tumnus because to make sure that, as as you mentioned, I I do love this your little like line in your summary where it just goes and it fell out one year that Tumnus, who was a middle aged fawn by now, like and beginning to be stout, to make sure that we as the listener know that time has passed. If you know them being grown adults didn't like, spoil it. Just in case you wondered if everybody aged in Narnia. But whatever. So he mentions this white stag that once you catch uh, gives you wishes uh, that they need to go hunting. And really this is just a plot point to bring the kids back into the earth realm uh, of things. Um, and as we were about to see, uh, this is just, this is a strange little section because the white stag, they're never going to see it. They're never going to catch it. Uh, the white stag does have some, like, some, you know, history and mythology, especially in Britain, uh, as kind of like this uncatchable creature. So it's like, I guess that's cool. And maybe this is just a, you know, a cultural thing. Like, we don't really have any appreciation for this white stag, but all of a sudden, the kids turn into, they go straight from NIV to KJV, and they're going yeah. real hard into Old English here. They're, they're doing full Shakespeare in the park. It's uh, yeah. it's it's really weird. <laughs> it's like jarring, because not only do they like suddenly talk like they're in the 1500s in like a cosplay, but also they don't remember who they are or where they came from or what yeah. they've done. Straight up forget everything. It's like a dream to them. And Peter, you know, this is the first line of dialogue we get in several pages, like in at least five pages, probably. And it's fair consorts. Let us now alight from our horses and follow this beast into the thicket. For in all my days, I never hunted a nobler quarry. What? Okay, right. calm down. Like this is this is Thor coming down in the first Avengers movie <laughs> and getting made fun of, and then by the last Avengers movie, he's playing Fortnite. Uh, like we need that Thor, right? The, the yeah. first Thor is a little too Shakespearean. Do any kids understand what this is saying? Because the the phrase uh, like "let us alight from our horses." Let I've never heard this phrase. Ages past. <laughs> yeah, this is this is very much. Hey, kids, you know how kings talk, right? Like even at this point, Queen Elizabeth doesn't speak like this. Like it's she speaks a formal English because she's the queen, but she doesn't speak old English. And, uh, Queen at least to my knowledge, I'm not a monarchist, but you know, whatever. But then Edmund. After watching Ed- the crown, I am. <laughs> okay, good for you, man. <laughs> I see a lot of issues with it still. I root for them, but I don't agree with the system. I mean, I've been rooting for Margaret for most of the time, but uh especially once she became Bellatrix Lestrange, it was like man, good that was the best. Oh my gosh, I love her. I love she's, her so much. She's great. Uh she's good. But uh, if if they don't cast Rupert Grint as uh, Prince Harry, I'm going to be yes. disappointed. Honestly, I, if you cast Prince Harry as Prince Harry. That'd be <laughs> Bro, I saw it like this is a total unrelated to this whole story. But I saw a story, like a little uh, video of him and James Gordon. And he was like doing this like Spartan race workout. Dude is like in shape. 
he was doing like like rope climbs with just his arms. And I was like, what in the world? If you think about it, his only job has ever been being, being in the military. So like, like yeah. He, I just thought that was like a for show, but man, like props to him. He was getting it. But back to the story uh, and a different, you know, king uh, or, you know, kind of uh, Edmund points out and says, hey, look at that. There's like a, some sort of iron tree. Uh, it's like what a, is this metal? What is this? What a strange de- by the lion's mane, a strange device I see. Uh, and like then they have this discussion. It's the lantern that they you know you know entered and saw. Um, and they start before. They don't remember it uh, except Edmund goes. I know uh, not how it is, but this lamp on the post worketh upon me strangely. It runs in my mind that I have seen the like before, as it were in a dream, or in the dream of a dream. Sorry if my if my like impressions of them becomes like Dumbledore esque. I that's kind of how it feels to me, though. Yeah, it is how it's written. I, I do like the in a dream of a dream, just going full Inception here, which would be the only thing that would make it make sense that they don't remember. They've been Incepted. Like, yeah, because also, if you're a king and queen of Narnia, shouldn't you know where the Lantern Waste is and maybe why it's called the Lantern Waste, which and is also, the name of this part of the country? Also, like, do they not just not a young them? wood? They say it's a young wood. This is not a young wood. This wood has been here for a minute. Yeah, do they not remember their own birth and like yeah. like their childhood? Because like, did they just assume that they have always lived in Narnia now? Lucy has the most permission for that because she was the youngest, but also like... But she was still eight. Even if they know their own history, they know that they were the first human kings and queens of Narnia in their minds. And so they came from somewhere else. Yeah. And it's also like, it's literally like, we're, we're mid-20s, like pushing closer and closer to 30s like we're not old by any means but like i think we're probably about the age that they are i'd imagine so i mean if if susan and lucy are you know being like asked for their hands in marriage they're they're not too old so it's like they're definitely not old enough to be you know forgetting things yeah i remember elementary school yeah i I couldn't tell you like a math problem that i had to do in first grade but, but I you know, know you know I the broad strokes grade. though. Yeah. Yeah, I know that I existed. <laughs> to quote Nick Taylor Swift, I forgot that you existed and I myself mean, as well. Uh, I forget that I exist now more than I forget that I existed as a child. That's, that's true. Is, that's stuff I need to work out in therapy. That's true. <laughs> but they also forget that this lamp existed. They're they're debating whether or not to to go on and, and, you know, test this new adventure. And like everyone seems to be kind of for it, except Susan says, let's just not. I'd rather stay. I feel you, Sue. Like, yeah. Susan, and then, again, reasonable. Reasonable. And Peter goes, nah, that ain't us, except in old English. Uh, and so they decide, you know what? Screw it. Let's go forward into these bushes, uh, which are going to immediately turn into coats. And then they tumble through the wardrobe and we're back. Cue premature Sam Ellinger celebration. We're back. Hashtag Texas is back. And we're, I guess that's it. We're just back in the room. And apparently we don't remember the fact that we come from Earth, but we remember that we stole coats. (laughs) We we do remember that we stole coats. Although uh, Lewis does not remember how many, because they decide to go and tell the professor why why there's coats missing from the upstairs wardrobe. That's like the cheeky way that C.S. Lewis gets them into talking to the professor. And they are like, well, we should let him know why there's four coats missing. But if you remember, friends, Edmund was already in Narnia and notably for several chapters complained about how he didn't have a coat. So I'm going to disagree with you. Actually, no. Lucy was there first without a coat. He brought a coat, but he left the coat on the ground outside of the beaver's house. So that was, they all four come in together because they're playing hide and seek. Because, and then and Edmund 
loses his coat at the beaver's house. Is that right? Yep. Because they all four come in the first trip. Remember, we had these conversations, you know, granted, this was like, you know, several months ago, uh, whenever we're starting this book. Uh, but first trip into Narnia is just Lucy. Second trip into Narnia is Lucy followed by Edmund and then both return uh, separate adventures in Narnia. And then third trip into Narnia is all four children playing hide and seek. And then they separate Edmund off of them and then all four return. Okay. Okay. So I'm wrong. You are wrong. It happens. It's fine. It's happened before. It'll happen again. I'm sure. It'll happen again. Uh, but you know who's not wrong, Chase? Professor Diggory. Uh, who never is, has been. Never he's will be. never been wrong a single time uh, because he he tells them, no, like he believes their whole story because he's been to Narnia. This seems like a time where you could tell them, yeah, I've also been to Narnia, but he doesn't. It's implied. Like C.S. Lewis wasn't positive he was going to write the sixth book in this series yet. But yeah. He, like this he seems like a time to breadcrumbs. Yeah, this seems like the time to like you know share experiences here. But no, he doesn't do that. He but he tells them, "Nah, you won't make your way back through the wardrobe again. That door is shut. I think you're done here. But you're gonna go back to Narnia because I've got to sell more books in the future." Which very confident for someone who, as we know or as we can assume, has not been back to Narnia himself, seeing how that would have been mentioned in yeah. the last book. Also, weird that he knows the phrase always, once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king or queen of Narnia, seeing how that's a... He's only known one for the king first time. Yeah, the the one king or queen has not... And they weren't remembered. Yeah, they were not remembered. They were not always a king or queen of Narnia, as far as we're aware. Yeah, it's uh, it, they just, and then it just kind of ends. Uh, you know, they he tells them, "Don't tell anyone else because you'll think they'll think you're crazy." Which good advice, honestly. Although uh, if you're a child listening to this, if so, if anyone ever tells you, "Don't tell anyone," it's a bad sign, yes. red flag, yes. right away. This is related to you know visiting another realm in a fictional story. Uh, obviously, this is different circumstances than if you know, you are in the real world. Yeah, if if you ever accidentally stumble into a magical world, it might be fair to be careful who you tell or at least how seriously and earnestly you tell. Tell people that you trust. You yeah, know. It's, and, it's good to have some people to talk to. Right. Uh, but I, I feel like C.S. Lewis, after this whole book, misses a huge opportunity at the end of this book to warn us to not shut ourselves inside of a wardrobe. That's he did it for so many chapters in a row. And then we, we were out of the wardrobe and he just missed it. He even has them get into a, like stumble out of a wardrobe. And he could have been like, thank goodness that the door wasn't closed. Yeah. If they had closed the door, they wouldn't have been able to get back. They're but stuck. That... Like, but nope, he, he misses this opportunity and I'm disappointed. Yeah, C.S. Lewis not coming through. Rip. R.I.P. But uh, Chase, do you have anything else before we dive further up and further in? Uh, I think I'm good. Right on. Uh, Would you like to start us off? Sure. Uh, I think being the last chapter of, uh, of this book, it's worth talking about the literary priorities in ending a book like this. Like, so as we've talked about, this was the first book written in the series. And so the task of ending it is, is important. It sets the trends and the heart of what will carry forward into the rest of the series, while also having to tie up the loose ends and bring full circle the themes and storylines throughout this book. Lewis has to accomplish his fairy tale ending and show us that the Pevensey children in a way lived happily ever after in Narnia and that the rain healed all the woes and hardships of their people. Uh, but we also have to do callbacks to the little moments throughout the book to give a sense of completeness and get the reminder that Aslan isn't tame and see Tumnus get older and go back and see the lamppost with different eyes. And then there's finally the issues of the two different worlds of our stories, though, because even though we love Narnia, 
if the Pevensies had their happily after ever after in Narnia and never went back, that actually wouldn't be a complete story for the type of story that we're trying to be told here. And so the real adventure and challenges that they will have to face are at the end of the day in the real world. And that's where we'll get the phrase that ends our book, once a king and queen of Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia, they'll surely go back. But the whole thing about being a children's book and a fantasy story, right, both of those genres are ultimately, as, as fantastic as they can be, they're ultimately about real life and how the themes and pictures carry into the reader's heart and way of seeing the world. And so this story wraps up letting us know that even though we have to return to the real world after reading it, it will always be a part of us and we can always return to Narnia, even if not in the same way we first experienced it. And so it both sets up where we're going as the series continues in the future books and, and literal other ways of going into Narnia, but also as we carry into like the larger theme of like literature, like this is how we experience literature. And, and it kind of gives a promise for the reader to continue to love and cherish the story, even though it's ending. Yeah, I like that. Uh, mine uh, is, is this idea of like ending a book, ending a story with this, the royal celebration, the long awaited king or queen, um, and why this becomes such a popular story uh, technique. And you'll see this uh, in, in this story, you know, the end of the uh, Narni of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, concludes with uh, Peter, Susan, Lu uh, Edmund, and Lucy all becoming uh, kings and queens of Narnia. And there's this big celebration, they're crowned. Um, and you'll see this in Lord of the Rings and Return of the King when Aragorn refuses to be crowned until, uh, you know, Saur uh, Sauron has been defeated and the ring has been destroyed until Gondor is safe. Uh, he refuses to be recognized as king until that moment, right? Like he will refer to himself as like, I am that guy, but he's not going to go through, through his coronation until it's all done. And then uh, think about, you know, King David, he refuses to be crowned king, even though uh, he has been declared the next king of Israel um, by, uh, by Samuel. And uh, he's gone through this process. Uh, he's still... Uh, waits until Saul's death and mourns Saul and then takes the crown uh, and, you know, does so for a unified Israel. Uh, think about, even though it's not quite the same, think about Star Wars, uh, the end of uh, the series or the end of, you know, episode six, uh, Battle of Endor is over. They're celebrating and everything. And then now they have to go into this new regime. They're, uh, you know, the empire has been destroyed and they're moving into the new republic. They're, you know, quote unquote, coronating uh, new leaders. Uh, and I think what's important here is recognizing when, you know, this evil, uh, bad regime has been defeated, that you are transitioning into something good, something new, but it is important that you not transition too soon because then you're, like there's confusion, there's chaos. You don't get to appreciate the celebration, the newness, because the old hasn't been destroyed yet. It seems premature. But when you are done, when you have properly defeated a thing, you get to celebrate the new. You get to look forward to what is good and what is hopeful. Uh, and so you celebrate. You crown kings and queens. You uh, elect new uh, leaders. You bring in whoever is meant to rule. Uh, and you'll see this in a lot of stories that there is a celebration mixed with the, you know, crowning, the uh, bringing of the new leader of the new regime so that they can lead you into something better. And that's what you see in this book as well. Yeah. Awesome. But Chase, we have, uh, we've, we've stumbled out of the wardrobe. We've told our stories uh, and, and now it's time to just not, tell anything else about you know this story but don't worry listeners if there if this was one story of narnia we may not have entered into the same story before but we will enter into a future one and chase can you tell our listeners how they could potentially find this these future podcasts because it won't be through a wardrobe 
Yeah, yeah. Unless your wardrobe has Wi-Fi, in which case it might be. Uh, but you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Audible, all the places you love to get podcasts. Uh, find us there. Uh, while you're there, go ahead and leave us a rate and review. Five stars, please. Uh, we love those. We love to engage with you guys uh, there and on our Instagram, which is at Chronicles of Podcast. Uh, where we post that we have new episodes and jokes and stuff like that. Come be a part of our community there. Uh, and as, as we've said, this may be the last chapter in this book, but fear not, next week we're starting another book, The Horse and His Boy, Chapter 1, uh, where we're going to set out on another adventure in this world that we love. And uh, we're super pumped for that. Yeah. Um, unlike Aslan, we will not just quietly slip away because once a podcast about Narnia, always a podcast about yeah, Narnia. You know, this is not a tame podcast. You can't tie us down. Can't tie us down. We're wild. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. Remember the seagulls. Yeah. If, if C.S. Lewis is nothing else, he is pretty random. This yeah. story, this story has Santa Claus in it. I mean, I guess you're not you're not wrong, man. Uh, so, I've got like there's some mythology related to the white stag, but like it's super just all over the place. It will get into that, but like, oh well. Um, I did some research for it because I did not. <laughs> Did some research as in I looked it up right now. So, I mean, hey, that is still more than I've done.